Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. On this week's programme, I'll be hearing about how an album of photographs has led to an exhibition on Vespers, the cool Italian scooter that mods used to ride in Britain and that became all the rage in Hong Kong. They were also the preferred transport of the police and utility departments here. Later in the programme, George Cotherley tells me about selling equipment to illegal dentists in the former notorious Kowloon Walled City. And Chloe Lai finishes up with information about her documentary on the late Michael Wright, the architect of Hong Kong's early public housing, to be shown at his memorial on the 28th of April at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. But first, let's head to Saing Pun for some Vespa nostalgia. I think I was about 17 years old, and one of my friends had one. I really liked it, and I was helping him tinker around with it, fixing it. And then another guy had one up for sale, so I said, "Okay," and I bought it. And was I was probably 17 or 18 years old. Because where do you originate from? I'm from Boston, from the U.S., and I lived in the Italian neighborhood at the time. So a few of the Italians around had Vespas. Now the Vespers that we've got on show here, there's a, a red one, and uh, what do you call that? That's a real vintage color. Uh, yeah, that's a, that bike is uh, from 1964. It's ah. a Vespa VBB. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's probably one of the most classic models-looking Vespa. What people think of a Vespa, it's that bike. Yes, and it's sort of a light green. Yeah, yeah like a seafoam green. <laughs> now, you have your shop here in Hong Kong. Tell me about that. Well, I have a shop called Hong Kong Two Stroke, and about I started it about five years ago. And I was out in Kuntong. I had a little factory building out there. I was working out of as a workshop and more like a hobby space. And I was buying bikes and importing them, restoring them, and selling them. And then basically as a hobby. And now it's kind of taken over as a full-time job for me. I've moved the premises a year ago to Saing Poon, and from that it's completely changed my business. It's more people stop in and they come by, they hang out, and it's quite good. Your shop, Hong Kong Two Stroke, can be found in Third Street. But we've come to this wonderful exhibition area, which I didn't know about at all. It's it's a historic building. It's got lovely tiles on the floor. Because you're also an interior designer. Yeah, I do some <laughs> interior design. I dabble in interior design. That's kind of one of the reasons I came to Hong Kong, um, doing some of this and also a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah, the space is beautiful. I was walking by one day and I came in and I saw an exhibition about shop cats in here. I guess a well-known photographer was in Hong Kong and he took all these photographs of, you know, the famous cats that hang out in the shops. And we started chatting and I said, well, how did you get to use this space? And he said, oh, you just have to write to the government and what, blah, blah, blah. And after a long period of forms and things to fill out, I finally, finally accepted my proposal. So what's the building called? It's seven to nine U Lock Lane. That's the name of it. 
and it's got lovely, I mean, the brickwork on the side is uh, with this arch going over, and as I say, these lovely tiles. So um, they've, they've spruced it up, but I sense that not a lot has changed here. No, I think they kept they kept the basic structure and they they just revamped it a little bit they cleaned it up and they put a lot of effort into it they kept the original wooden frame windows they they try to keep all the original wooden beams so i mean it's a really comfortable space especially it's great to have a vintage show and a vintage yes. and a vintage shop house right so when did the first vespa come out well originally they came out in in italy in 1946 and they've been going strong ever since now, what you discovered through your <laughs> through your shop was uh, a guy came in with a photo album. Yeah, there's one. Uh, I was I was in. A, I had a pop up shop in Causeway Bay in uh, the HMV Records there, and while I was there, uh, a guy walked in. He said, "Oh, my grandfather sold Vespas in, in the 50s and 60s, and he was a mechanic and he was an uh, importer and did all kinds of crazy things, interesting things." So I was talking to the guy, and he said, oh, then he went away. And a couple of weeks later, he shows up with this huge stack of photographs. And I have to say, when I opened them up, I got goosebumps. I mean, it was unbelievable. All these pictures of Hong Kong in the 50s and 60s, his, his Vespa shop. Because back in the day, he was the man who actually, he was kind of the broker between the, the Italy, an Italian trading company, and like, let's say the government. The government used Vespas for transportation, for the gas department, for the police department, for all the utilities for the phone, um, and he was the guy that brokered those deals between the utilities companies and the Italian trading company. And the Italian trading company went to him because he was like probably one of Hong Kong's first mechanics, like licensed mechanics. Also, he was a bit of an inventor. I really, I mean, I, I wish he was around today. I met his daughter, who was about 78, and then their son is the one who gave me the pictures. And so do you know what the name is here? His name is Albert Chu. And it's C-H-U. And he built all these, I mean, there's a picture here with um, him balancing on his rolling, <laughs> on his rolling road. So he, he built these rolling roads to teach people how to drive Vespas. He was also teaching people how to drive, like, all the utilities companies and all these people, like, you know, to drive the bikes. The other really cool thing about him was he was really interested in walkie-talkies and radios and ham radios. And he was one of the earliest guys in Hong Kong to have this equipment. So he invented this, also these headphones sets that he would you'd put on when you're on the rolling road, and it would be a recording of him telling you how to drive the bike. So he didn't have to be there next to you. So, so it's what, really what cool. is a rolling road then? Rolling road is it's basically like the bike is on this thing. It's stationary in the front, fixed in the front, and the back wheel you can drive it and go through the gears because it's, the bike has gears. It you know, and you practice going through the gears on the rolling road before you go out onto this contraption where it's basically like a sidecar that, that teaches the driver how to be on the road on the bike. So you, you go out with an instructor? Yeah, and this guy came in. He's a really cool guy. He was the employee of Albert Chu, and his name was David Law. David Law married his boss's daughter. So they, David Law is still around? He's still around. He's, oh. he's 78 years old, and he looks 55. Guys, <laughs> and he's... He saw the Vespa when he came into it. I have a, foot, I have a really nice photograph of him and his wife sitting on it. His eyes just lit up. And he, he knew, he looked at this photograph, he goes, that's me. And he goes, I know, you know, he was working for one of the utility companies. And this picture is, which is my, I, I think is my showpiece picture. It is the corner of Queens Road East and Hennessy Road. So there's the tramway here. 
And I just love this, you know, that the old scene of Hong Kong. It's fantastic. And so you've got what? So you've got somebody, a policeman, yeah, it's a directing policeman traffic. On, yeah, on directing traffic, but he's in this like booth, like in a kind of police booth where he can, you know, wearing the white gloves and you know, directing the traffic. And I think it's a really great photograph. Yes, and also the the, the billboards behind the advertising yeah. on these buildings, um, and also the the wonderful uh, cars around it. Yeah. So this is early '60s, you think? Yeah. Or? This this picture was probably about 1961, mm. and also the style. Like, if you look at all these pictures, all the guys they had such cool style back then. And it, I mean, this style. Is kind of goes with the whole mod style when you know in the 60s when kids in London and England used to drive the Vespa and Lambrettas they used to all get dressed up and ride it and that's kind of you know the beauty of a Vespa it's kind of an elegant glamorous simple vehicle you know that's you know it's a lot it's I guess it's considered a luxury item would it have been highly affordable the fact that the utility departments went for well, this model here's here's something that's real really interesting okay so I just, actually a customer came in and, and pointed this out. Here's a chalkboard in the thing, and this, this is probably from about... So this, it's in a workshop, is it? it or it's, it's in, in the training? Boring, it's in Borington Motors, and if you look on this, it says the date, 1958 GS, 150 GS, 1600 Hong Kong dollars. A 150 CC, 1956, $900. These are all the pricing, right? So this bike here today, this 150 GS, 1600 Hong Kong dollars, which is about... You know, probably 250 US. I think it's around that much, right? That bike is about 8,000 US dollars now, or more, maybe 10,000 US dollars, depending on the condition. It's a very, it's also quite a rare bike. So all these bikes here, I mean, they're classics. What they're selling. So, I mean, back then it was probably a lot of money, but still, it was uh, amazing, right? So we're at uh, Barrington Motors here, and you've got uh, one man who's uh, got these earphones on that you described of, Albert Chu. Yep. And uh, so he's so These he's are learning. all trainees. Yes. Yeah, these are and all these are employees, and these are trainees. So she's on the rolling road. As you can see, the bike is fixed. In a, in a skirt and court shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, I mean, dressed up nice, she, and she's, she's connected to the wall, and um, to, the, to the rolling road, and she's driving, going through the gears. And this bike is uh, probably a 1957, you know, 58 Vespa. Why do you think it captures the imagination? Well, you mean the photograph or the bike? The bike. Well, I mean, you know, they kind of, I, I don't know, they're just cute, right? I mean, I know I shouldn't use the word cute, but they're, they're really easy vehicles to drive. They're very economical. Um, you can go all over town on a, you know, a liter of gas. All, you can go two days with a liter of gas. Are they quiet? Not so quiet, and they're not so environmentally friendly because they're two-stroke engines. But you know, if they're tuned properly and they're you know maintained properly, they're okay. There are you can smell them coming, but the smell just every. I mean, I love the smell, really, I do. So, are they easy to fix? Yes, easy to fix. You can fix them on your dining room table. You can fix the engine on your table if you if your wife lets you. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I mean, it's interesting you see women training on these photographs here on this rolling road. Yeah. And, um, and I've seen some feedback to, uh, there was a previous article in the South China Morning Post about yeah. your exhibition. And there's been feedback that I'm seeing both from women and men from that era. Well, I, funny enough, after the article came out, I've gotten a lot of emails from, from old Vespa Club members. They, they said, oh, we, I was a teenager in 1958. I was 19. I bought my first Vespa. They sent me photographs of themselves, and so I have a photograph from the show, 
and then they're in the photograph, and they sent me another photograph from either the same day or the same, you know, the same year or something. So I have uh, a lady, she was driving with us, and then she told me the story how it got, she used to live somewhere near Clearwater Bay, and it got stolen, and she found it wrecked outside the barracks somewhere, and I don't know, it's a great story, though. And then we had another, another guy contacted me, said, oh, my father was in the Vespa Club in the 1950s. He had four Vespas in his lifetime. So we still got a Hong Kong Vespa Club here. Yeah, there's a Vespa Club in Hong Kong. There's a couple, yeah. So there's this there's a Vespa Club of Hong Kong. There's probably about 200 members. I'm the uh, token white committee member, and it's a really good group of people, all Vespa fanatics. It's the other thing about Vespas is like people get them, and it's not just for most people. It starts out as a bike, but turns into a lifestyle. It really, it really is like a lifestyle choice. And uh, what did you still wear mod clothes on it? Well, it's funny, we, a lot of people ask this question. Um, I'm definitely not wearing jeans and a T-shirt when I drive it. Maybe jeans, but a nice shirt. You know, you've got to kind of keep up appearances, right? You've got to look good. You met a man who was in the Hong Kong Vespa Club in the 1950s. I met a guy. I, I got an email from a guy, and he said, oh, my father was in the Vespa oh, Club right. in the 1950s. So... I wasn't sure who was emailing me, but I, I figured out later. So the guy sent me a uh, he sent me about five or six photographs, and, and they were amazing. And I, I was it was right before the show, so I was able to print one out. And I, I sent them the invitation to the show. So a man walked in with another guy and a, and a woman. It was an old man, ninety. He was in the photographs. His name was Sammy Kwok, and he was a Vespa fanatic. So he came in, he was 90 years old, he came in, looked at the Vespa, knew all about it, started telling me, showing me, because I, I was asking, where was this picture taken, where was it? He goes, oh, this was around Castle Peak, and this was about 1956, 57, and he goes, this is like an award I won for a race around, it was like a, a scavenger hunt they had, race. What, they had Vespa races? Oh, they, have unbe- they had races, they had hill climb races, they had um, scavenger hunts, they had all, I have a really crazy photograph from another woman who sent me a picture of... So there's one girl in the back of the Vespa, one girl in the front, and the girl driving was blindfolded. Oh, and they were in a field, so luckily I think it's okay. But it was really, I was like, I need to know more about this photograph. So I've, I've been overwhelmed by contacts, and I get, I got messages from people in America, in, I mean, literally Australia, New Zealand, Italy. One of the head guys from Piaggio in Italy, Piaggio who owns Vespa, contacted the shop in Hong Kong called Motoplex, what sells Vespa, and they said, immediately get in touch with me. They want information about the show. They want to be involved in the show. It's, it's crazy. I mean, the, the, So it's one man in his photo album has kicked this all off. Yeah, and, and you know, the guy, the family, the Chu family that gave me the photographs, they're amazing. They're really nice people, and, you know, I, they, they're very happy that I did this. I mean, I didn't do this to make money. I did it because of a passion, and, you know, anybody that's interested in a little bit of history of Hong Kong, it's a great, it's a great thing to see. The photographs, are, they're not just pictures of bikes, but, you know, there's, it's, there's pictures of some locations. So Barrington Motors was where? There was two locations, what I was told. One of them was in Happy Valley, and then one of them was actually on Borington Road in Causeway, like between Causeway Bay and Happy Valley. So they, that area was called Borington, and there was a Borington Road. <laughs> so that's where they were, Borington Motors, run by Albert Chu, and uh, his grandson has uh, been in to see Christian Keith at Hong Kong Two Stroke, and that's what uh, started all of this off. But you also sell Vespers. Yeah, we do restorations, we do repairs, we do import, um, yeah, everything, all kinds of, uh, all your all your service needs. 
The Vesper exhibition um, is on until when? May 19th is the closing day. So I'll probably have like a closing party on the May 19th. And if people want to come here? Yeah, they can come. Um, we're pretty much open every day from about 10 till 6 o'clock at night. And uh, if we can have the address again? It's 7 to 9 U-Lock Lane so in Saingpun. And the easiest way to enter it is if you're coming up s- Center Street between High Street and 3rd Street. There's a little park and you go into the park and it's in there in an old restored building. Yes, I'm, I'm uh, very interested in this building as well in terms of, uh, I think it's great that they're allowing for um, exhibitions to yeah. take place. What a fantastic discovery the, you've made. Yeah, they're very strict about it though. You're not allowed to touch the walls with the work. So I had to use fishing string and hang it from the lighting system. But you've done a good job. I mean, these, uh, you know, you've enlarged all of these photographs. Yeah. So they, they were just prints in an album, were they? They were original photographs and they were, some of them were postcard size, but most of them were a little bit about uh, A4 size. And they, these were all re-photographed and they weren't scanned, they were photographed and then so I could get bigger resolution and better resolution. So this photograph shows like the police uh, women are on their vespers. This pictures were probably around 1961. And uh, it's great, all the, all the nice uniforms they have on and uh, it's a, I think it's a really nice picture. They're all looking very smart. They're, yeah, they're yeah. well-polished shoes, yeah. aren't they? They're really polished but, and the un- I think the uniforms are super, I mean, they're pretty flattering, I think, for a police outfit, right? Yeah. And then um, this is uh, this photograph here is also something I really love. This was the taking delivery for the police department. So these are all Vespas. Okay, how many lined up there? About 25? Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, back then, what this man, Mr. Kwok, was telling me is that Vespas were everywhere and everywhere in Hong Kong because they were affordable. He said, everywhere you go, they'd see them. And I said, where are they now? And he said, they probably all just rotted away. Yes, because I always associated, I mean, I was surprised by this exhibition because I always associated scooters, really, with Macau. Yeah, I mean, for some reason, Hong Kong is not, I mean, after kind of cars took over, people didn't want scooters anymore. It's, you know, Hong Kong's a, it's kind of a flash place, right? You don't even see old cars on the road here. But I'm trying to bring back the vintage bike here. I mean, there were vintage stuff before I started my shop. There was old, there were scooters driving around, and there was a scooter club established before I did my shop. I started um, doing it because of my own passion for the bikes, and I, when I moved to Hong Kong, I left my Vespas in London. I moved here from London. How many did you have? I had three. <laughs> and the relocation company was like, oh, it's really difficult to ship bikes to Hong Kong, blah, blah, blah. So I ended up selling them there, and like with a heavy heart and then coming here and after a couple of years I was like man I really miss having a bike so I bought a, I just bought an old delivery bike and restored it and then I sold it and someone bought it immediately like so I said oh maybe I'm onto something so and that's kind of how it all started so I'm talking to Christian Keith here at this Vesper exhibition it's absolutely superb um, do make an effort to come before May the 19th it's open from about 10 o'clock to 11 uh, through till 6pm in the evening every day and in this wonderful restored building so Christian thanks very much for your time today now um, I've got a feeling this is going to roll on a bit yeah it's, uh, I, think it's, I think it's going well <laughs> Yeah, 
sai che ti dico? Me la compro la Vespa. Viaggio convince. My thanks to Christian Keith of Hong Kong Two Stroke talking there on his exhibition Vespa The Hong Kong Story, which is on show at numbers 9 to 10 Ulock Lane in Saiyingpun until May the 19th. Two weeks ago, I had China analyst and author Mark O'Neill on Hong Kong heritage to talk about his book Israel and China from the Tang Dynasty to Silicon Wadi. Here's a recap of Mark talking about a businessman he had met in Shanghai. Who would be sent dental molds from Paris to turn around in a Chinese factory? Well, another his product was dentures, because he explained that when you have a denture made, every person has a different mouth. You can't make dentures with a machine. So he came originally from Paris. So the, the the patient would come to the dentist on a Thursday morning and put. The plastic mold in his mouth. The plastic mold would then go to DHL. It would fly to Pudong Airport. Uh-huh. It would then go to a um, a man in a Pudong uh, factory, who would make the denture. And then on Monday, it would go back to DHL and fly back to Paris. And on Tuesday morning, the patient would go back to the surgery in Paris and get <laughs> get his new dentures. I mean, now we're all familiar with globalization, but at that time when he explained, I, I was quite stunned by that. Well, businessman George Cotherley, who was also recently on the program talking about going to the early Canton fairs and selling medical equipment to China, heard the show and wanted to add his comments to what Mark had to say. I was quite amused about this because I am in the dental business and we provide materials to dental laboratories. And one of the materials we provide is the impression material, which they use to take an impression of your tooth, and then they send it. The dentist does this, and he sends it to the laboratory, and then the laboratory makes the crown or the bridge or whatever it is.、Um, and probably about twenty, twenty-five years ago,、uh, the dental laboratories in Hong Kong started to. Uh, do this for overseas customers. So dentists in Europe, USA, Australia, wherever,、um, would send them their impressions, and then they would make the denture for them and send them back. And was, this was a burgeoning business in, in Hong Kong in those days. But of course, as always happens in Hong Kong, costs catch up with you, and it became increasingly more inefficient to do it in Hong Kong. So the dental laboratories opened laboratories in Shenzhen and expanded considerably. Their laboratories here probably had tens of technicians. In Shenzhen, they had hundreds of technicians. So I was amused to hear that this was also going on in Shanghai because it, it, it's something that has been been done in China for a long, long time now. Now, if I have、um, any kind of dental stuff done in Hong Kong now, would it still then probably be sent over to mainland China? No, they, they would.、Uh, for Hong Kong patients, they would do it in Hong Kong. But th- this is this was a separate business、uh, where they did it for overseas dentists, and therefore they needed to keep costs down much more than for Hong Kong、uh, patients that、uh, they were able to charge 
rather more for them. Well, thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, no, that's quite interesting, you know, to talk about dental heritage. Right, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's rather new heritage, but still, it's heritage after all. <laughs> yes, I mean, before that, it would have just been a, a piece of string and a door, wouldn't it? And yeah, slam well, the door. Well, yes, yes, I mean, uh, uh, dentists, uh, qualified dentists, didn't actually appear in Hong Kong till sometime after the Second World War. Maybe there were a, a few, but I remember my dentist, or my family dentist, was a gentleman called Sammy Shields. And Sammy Shields, if I remember correctly, was in Stanley internment camp. Sammy Shields used to take your teeth out with his, with his fingers. Uh, I remember my father telling me this. Uh, he had very strong fingers. And, and this was before there were too many dental tools, I think. But dental technicians were allowed to practice as dentists up until a certain time. And then when that was stopped, uh, they all migrated to the Kowloon Walled City. Um, and there was a very vibrant uh, dental business in the Kowloon Walled City with uh, illegal dentists who were uh, former dental technicians. So did you ever go in the Kowloon Walled City? Yes, yes, because we actually sold dental equipment and dental products uh, to the illegal dentists. And out of curiosity and, you know, know your customer, I did go in one time and they were very well equipped and they did a very good and very useful service. I also understood that it was mainland dentists who'd come in you know and fled in but didn't have hong kong certification well i th i think that was probably eventually the majority of them but certainly there were a lot of dental technicians who had been practicing legally as dentists until the new regulations came in and then to carry on their business they had to go into the Kowloon Wall City where they were they apparently were protected um, because the police never wanted to go in there um, so was the equipment quite old-fashioned where did it, I mean or did you yes it was I mean I, I, I saw yes I saw some equipment there where where you used hand to to uh, operate the drills but they gradually because their business was quite good so they they gradually upgraded and, and bought uh, better equipment Oh, so like a hand drill, yes, so it's yes, sort of yes. going going through wood, or yes, yeah. <laughs> or perhaps you could have a guy sort of cycling on a dynamo behind well, that, you. Yeah, that would have been also a very efficient way of doing it. Actually, you you employ your 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 driller who would have a bicycle that would turn the whole thing. Yes, <laughs> George Coverley there. I missed the Kowloon Walled City, so it's always interesting to hear tales from people who lived there or went inside. Michael Wright, the former head of the Public Works Department and the architect of Hong Kong's early post-war public housing, featured on this programme in February following his death in January at the age of 105. Chloe Lai of the NGO Urban Diary created a documentary with Michael called The Wright Chronicle. This will be shown at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum at a memorial there on April the 28th, which you can attend. Here's Chloe Lai. I visited him in London before we actually did the interview and during which I showed him a booklet uh, produced by Urban Diary and the booklet was about Sam Shui Po. So when he saw the word Sam Shui Po, he started talking about his war experience um, or his experience in the internment camp in Sam Shui Po. And he kept talking and talking and I thought, wow, this person, his memory is still very good and then he shared with me his experience during the war and how often nowadays we still got people who can tell you and answer your questions about the war and Hong Kong under Japanese occupation. So, and then also because his contribution to public housing and then he was very old at that time, 103. Therefore, we think we should do an extended interview with him and see how many information we can collect um, when his memory is still sharp and he can still answer questions. So 
So that's the background of the Wright Chronicle film. So you actually spent about three months in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you would you would regularly visit him at his flat in Exhibition Road. Yeah, we met three times a week: uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And then we usually talk about two and a half hours. Uh, we start to you know chit chat first, and then we enter the recording, and then after that we also chit chat a bit. And he can't talk too much; he gets tired easily. But what an extraordinary resource he was, and such a such a nice man. Yeah, yeah, he is, and he's very open. He's accessible, and then he's very open about his experience, and he's really willing to share his stories. And his memory is very sharp and very good as well. So you took those hours of interviews and um, then created the the Wright Chronicle. So the Wright Chronicle is in video format, and that's going to be shown at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. So that's in in memoriam to Michael Wright. So anybody can come along to that? Yeah, yeah, it's open to the public, so everybody can come. We also have to thank the Maritime Museum for providing the venue. And then actually, they can accommodate in the first place they... They can accommodate 120 people uh, because the response was so good. So they decided they will use all their reserve folding chairs. Oh, that's great. (laughs) So we can uh, can accommodate up to 180 people. So we, we open the registration again. If you'd like to see the Michael Wright Chronicle, then do register online at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum website. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.